You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, this morning we're grateful, as we are always, for your word and for the saints as we gather together to study your word. We ask that you would be the teacher, Lord, that we would hear from you, that this morning our eyes would be open to things we didn't know and confirmed in things that you have taught us. Lord, we pray that you would use your word this morning to, to expand the church, to, to build the church, to build up your saints, and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, we're still in 2 Corinthians for the next couple of years, probably. And we're going to, we're in chapter 1. Um, let's read verses 12 through the end of the chapter. We might, I think we'll make it to the end of the chapter today. 2 Corinthians. Did I say 1 Corinthians again? I did, okay, because I've been saying that for so long. <laughs> okay, yeah, you got to watch me all the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. <laughs> For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you that you might receive twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia, to come to you, and by you be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purposed to do, I purposed according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is, is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by, by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that, I, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. Now, I want to point out one thing before we get started. We all know that the Bible chapters, divisions, are subjective and this is a very poor, at least in my estimation, a very poor place to end it. And when we get to that, we'll talk about it. But verse 1 of chapter 2 actually continues the thought that Paul was doing in, in chapter 1. But we're clear back on verse 15. And so that's where we'll start this morning. <clears throat> so we looked at keeping a clear conscience last week, the last part of our study that week, last week or two weeks ago, I guess. Um... People were saying that you had to read between the lines to really understand what Paul was saying. And they were also saying he wasn't trustworthy. 
in what he was saying. So my question to them would have been, which is it? Is he trustworthy? Or do we have to read between the lines? One of the two, both can't be true. If he's not trustworthy, then reading between the lines isn't going to help if he's a liar. And that's essentially what the, the false apostles in Corinth were propagating against the Apostle Paul. And he had, had, had promised them, not promised, I, I take that word back, he had told them that he was going to come to them at a certain time, and then he was unable to. And so based on all of that, the false apostles in Corinth were prompting the church there that they shouldn't be trusting Paul because he couldn't keep an itinerary. So, in verse 15, which is where we're going to start, Paul has, he, he, he intimates to the Corinthians this. He said, in this confidence, I intended to come to you, first at first to come to you, so that you might twice receive a blessing. Originally, he intended to visit Corinth as he passed through Macedonia. This had not come to pass. He wasn't able to do it. Uh, and actually, there's more to it than that, but I don't want to steal Paul's thunder. We'll wait until we get to the towards the end of the chapter. He intended to visit Corinth on his way to Macedonia, probably from Ephesus, and then come back through Corinth as he traveled from Macedonia back to Jerusalem. And that's what he said. He might, they might, they might twice receive a blessing. This would enable him to see the Corinthians twice, and he termed that a double blessing. He was currently in Macedonia, coming through Troas through, from Ephesus, and so he had not visited Corinth at all. This would be the reason why some in Corinth concluded that they couldn't count on him. They were telling others that his word was not to be trusted. He couldn't, they said, even keep an itinerary. Have you ever had your plans, travel plans interrupted? Flat, I heard about a flat tire this morning. She probably did it on purpose. Yeah, it was a plan. It was a communist plot. And, I mean, itineraries, travel plans are often, probably more often than not, interrupted, changed. Uh mostly because of the exigencies of the day and, and our responsibilities. But remember, in these days, they had far less options. They had far fewer options. They were walking or, or, or riding a boat, traveling by boat, and then walking. And uh, companions that couldn't go would change their, tra their travel plans. Often they had to travel together because of the dangers they would encounter on the road. Not so much today, um, I hope. <laughs> but in those days, it was true. And so those aren't the reasons that all, we don't know all the reasons that prompted Paul's change, but we will find out about one of them when we get towards the end of this chapter. But the problem was, was that the false apostles were looking for any opportunity to undercut Paul's message. And I don't know how many of them were, were Judaizers that believed that you had to add all of this to the gospel in order to be saved. But whenever you're trying to undercut someone's message, you'll look for anything to detract from them. Anybody ever heard of an ad hominem attack? If you can't, de if you can't, uh, if you can't refute their argument, then call them a name. And so Paul was a promise breaker. He's a promise breaker. You can't trust this man. It's not what happened, and we're going to see that. So then Paul says this in verse 16. He says that is being a double blessing, twice being a blessing, going in, coming back to pass your way into Macedonia, and again, from Macedonia, to come to you, and by you, be helped on my journey to Judea. As mentioned, his itinerary would have passed him through Corinth twice, and he would have ex expected their help. He would have solicited their help. 
and expected their help in sending him home to Judea. Helping someone, and I want to just point this out. It's, I didn't write this down, so I, this is all free form. But uh, helping someone is a double blessing. The person who is being helped gets blessed. But the people, the folks that are doing the helping, it's also a blessing to them to be able to be part of, especially a ministry, to help them, to give them assistance. And so that's what Paul was talking about with the Corinthians here. It's apparent from some of the other statements that we'll look at that he makes that they wanted to help him and they were a bit miffed that they were not able to do so. They were not really happy with him not pointing out that he didn't take money from them so that he could bring the gospel to them. He actually took it from the churches in Macedonia to enable him to bring the gospel to Corinth. And so was this apparent fickleness that they described in him by his enemies. His enemies portrayed him as fickle that they used to communicate to the Corinthians the idea that if he couldn't be trusted to keep an itinerary, how could they trust his theological statements? Now, that's a big stretch. But when you're using ad hominems, you can do anything you want. Well, he, he doesn't use the same type of comb that I use. Therefore, he's not trustworthy. People go, do you actually use a comb? My wife says that sometimes. Did you use a comb today? Anyway, they were looking for reasons to undercut Paul's message. Satan always looks for any reason and every reason to undercut the message of the gospel. And he will use any opportunity he can, any method he can, any effect he can. And that's part of what was going on here. They were accusing him of being vacillating, of going of this, going this way, and then this way, changing his mind. He says, in verse 17, he says, Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Obviously, they had used probably this word. They had accused him of being unable to make up his mind. And he says, I wasn't doing that, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Is, am I the kind of guy who says yes and means no and says no and means yes? He's asking them. Here he apparently answers one of the accusations put toward him. He was accused of being shifty, that, that he vacillated after making a promise. First of all, it's doubtful that it was a promise. Paul would have been smart enough not to make any promises about travel plans in first century Macedonia, first century middle, the middle um, Roman Empire. Secondly, he sarcastically refers to their accusation that his yes is not yes and his no is not no. This would have violated one of the very prime teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, he said, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath on your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil, is of evil. Christ is telling his the followers, don't have to make oaths. He's not, he's not necessarily saying oaths are evil, but just when you say yes, make it yes. And when you say no, it means no. Let your word be your bond. So this accusation that Paul's yes was no and his no was yes proceeds from the accusation in verse 13 um, where he says that we write nothing else but than what you read. From the verse 13 where his detractor said you couldn't trust what he said and he had, you had to read between the lines. You've got to read between the lines to understand what Paul's really saying. None of this was true. 
Paul was a man of his word and could be and uh, hit and would proceed to explain that. He found it quite ludicrous that they attributed a change in his character simply because his travel plans changed. It does bear mentioning, as Barclay has said, though, that the character and trustworthiness of the preacher or teacher does affect the trustworthiness of his message. Now, I just wanted to bring that up as I was studying this. There is a point where if you can't trust the preacher, the teacher, then you probably can't trust his message either. So that those who are involved in teaching must be of proven character. And so this is what uh, Barclay says. He says, although the Corinthians were slandering Paul, there remains this salutary truth. The trustworthiness of the messenger affects the trustworthiness of the message. Preaching is always truth through personality. And if a man cannot trust the preacher, he is not likely to trust the preacher's message. Among the Jewish regulations regarding the conduct and character of a teacher, it is laid down that he must never promise the teacher, that is, must never promise anything to a class which he cannot or will not do. This would be to accustom the class to falsehood. Here is a warning that promises should never be lightly given, for they may, may, well, may well be as lightly broken. Before a man gives a promise, he should count the cost of keeping it and make sure that he is able and willing to pay it. Again, I say, I doubt that Paul made a promise to anybody about his itinerary because he was smarter than that. He knew the exigencies of the difficulties of travel in, in the Roman Empire. But his itinerary, which was subject to change, should not be used to impugn his character. In this particular case, it was being done so to undercut the gospel, to undercut the message of Christ. Any comments or questions about those three verses? I forgot to ask you on each one. Verse 18. But, as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Paul is not saying here that he is as faithful as God. No one is. But he is saying that God has made him a faithful man, a trustworthy man, someone that people can trust. And he is not, and he has demonstrated that trustworthiness again and again in the 18 months he spent in Corinth to found the church and in the times later that he has come and passed through and when he wrote to them in his letters to them, his love for them was well known and his concern was well known as well. Paul is affirming here that God is truthful and so was he. God rendered him truthful. His honesty and his loyalty to the Corinthians should never have been impugned and his, his detractors should have been ashamed when they read this letter. But more important than his reputation, the word of God was true and he was preaching it. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus. Look at that title. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus. He uses pretty much the whole New Testament title of Christ there who was preached among you by us. Now, who, who did we bring to Corinth? We brought the, the Lord of creation. By me and Silvanus and Timothy, that preaching was not yes and no, but is yes in him. So now Paul calls on the Lord Jesus Christ who commissioned him in the first place. It is likely that there were those who were in Corinth who were only slandering Paul, were, were, who are not only slandering Paul, but were misusing the teachings of the Lord Jesus as well. And that's common. How often today do we see, are you, I just, this is a new thing to me. I've only discovered it in the last maybe year. People that, what are being termed as red letter Christians. You know what that is? That's, if, if Jesus didn't say it, then it's not scripture. What? 
In Matthew chapter 10, he promises the apostles that as they go through their, their preaching for him, he said, I will, we, God will give you the words. The Holy Spirit will be speaking the words. And not only that, but do they actually not believe what Paul said in 1 Timothy, where he said that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. And where Peter said, Paul's words are hard to be taken, but they are scripture. In reality, pretty much all of the Bible should be read because they're all the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it. The and it is comma. Well, no, we put the commas in. But everything else, it should all be read letter. And we need to not let people get away with that politely, but not let them get, the, get away with that. That's an easy out to dispute things that we don't like to do. Well, this Jesus didn't say anything about investing in Bitcoin. Neither did Paul. <laughs> you know. Okay. And I'm getting a little bit careless there. But nevertheless, Paul's word was the words of the Lord. And it was faithful. And it was Christ Jesus being preached by him as well. So they were slandering Paul. They were claiming he, and they were also misusing, I would say, the teachings of the Lord Jesus. Paul's preaching of Christ in Corinth was positive and established. Silvanus, a leader in the Jerusalem church who was entrusted to carry the Jerusalem council letter to the church in Antioch and had replaced Barnabas on Paul's secondary mission, second missionary journey, was also preaching the living Christ. Timothy, who was Paul's trusted companion and fellow minister, raised from a child in the Scriptures, was always also preaching Christ. All three of their preaching was clear, trustworthy, and verifiable. None of them said one thing and meant another. None of them wrote things that you had to parse in between the pages and the lines to figure out what they were saying. Here Paul uses the full title of Christ, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, calling upon their memories of Christ himself, who taught only the truth said what he meant, and meant what he said. And his apostles would do no less. Paul is claiming his authority from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And uh, <coughs> building a case against those, whatever they were, super apostles, claimed apostles, false apostles, in Corinth that were slandering the work, of, the work that they were doing. <coughs> Any comments, questions? Verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God, in Him, in God, they are yes. Therefore, also through Him is our amen, or so be it, to the glory of God through us. The promises of God are all founded upon His name, upon His character, and upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and upon the work of the Holy Spirit. And through Christ, we can say, so be it. And God gets the glory. The promises that God has made to His children, that is the elect, are wonderful and varied. How many are in here? Has, has, is there a count? There's probably somebody has counted the promises of God. Anybody just have that off the top of their head? Okay. There's probably more than ten. I think that's a given. There's a whole bunch of promises, and they are, yes, they are guaranteed. They are established. They are perfect. They're going to come to pass. They all rest upon the truth. And that truth has its foundation in Christ. Paul faithfully proclaimed that truth and continued to expand it as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the epistles. 
These promises, especially the latest ones proclaimed to the Corinthians by the teaching of Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, at least in this part of the world, were a continuation of the gospel that was preached to the Corinthians to which they had responded. He, he mentions that in 1 Corinthians. You responded to this. You understood it and you responded. You became believers. And which had changed their lives. This word, this preaching, this finished word of God had changed their lives. Everything Paul was doing now was just as reliable. If the truth that Christ preached and the gospel that Paul brought to them had indeed changed their lives, it was trustworthy. It was trustworthy because it was the word. If it was compatible and supported by the Old Testament scriptures, as the Bereans noted, why now are they thinking that there has been a change in Paul's reliability? And the reason they were is because the false apostles had put this little tick into their mind. If he can't keep a travel itinerary, he's not to be trusted. Unfortunately, we are human be human nature is such that we are prone to believe the least little nick against somebody. Why is that? Sometimes it seems like we're more more easily swayed by bad news than by good news. We we and, and Paul's going to talk about that a little bit later too. It's it's it seems to be a tendency almost to like bad news. Maybe that's just me, I don't know, but it seems like that's what I see in the world today. How much can we learn what can we learn about praising one another, about encouraging one another, about building one another up, about talking about the positive attribute. I'm not talking about the power of positive speaking. Positive thinking. Yeah. I couldn't think of the word. I'm not very positive. I'm talking about encouraging one another in the Lord, blessing one another in the Lord. Yes, we need to call one another out when, when there are, are discrepancies, when we're not following Scripture, when we're sinning. But man, we are ready to do that in a heartbeat. But boy, to praise somebody, I don't want to do that. He'll get a big head. You know the Holy Spirit can handle that too. But in Christ, all of the promises, all of the wonderful promises are yes. And then he says this, and this is really important. The way God illuminated and inspired the writers of Scripture is every aspect of that is important. The way the words were written, the way they've been transmitted down to us through the ages. He says this, now he who establishes us with you in Christ, and anointed us, us is God. Here, Paul calls not on his own integrity, nor on men, but he calls on God. And I want us to note also that he does it in such a way that he acknowledges that the Corinthians, as well as he, were established in Christ and anointed by God. There is no special anointing for elders and pastors or teachers or some supposed Christian superstar. All believers are established in Christ. All believers are anointed. All believers are sealed. All believers are gifted. All believers are given the Spirit. Now, you don't have to pay for the Spirit. You don't have to wait for the Spirit. You don't have to do some sort of an contortion, a spiritual contortion for the Spirit. At salvation, you are anointed, sealed, and given the Spirit. Established, anointed, sealed, and given the Spirit. Every time, without fail. That is Christ's yes to you. There is no no in it. 
There's no need to wait for a second blessing. There's no need to compare ourselves to someone who seems to have a greater portion. God has given equally to all. Different, but equal. And one, one person said it this way. The reason he made us all different is because if we were all the same, most of us would be unnecessary. And he wanted us to all be necessary. So we're all different. All gifted. All anointed. All sealed. All. The establishment of a believer in Christ has done its salvation. If the Corinthians would deny that Paul had been established by Christ, then they would be denying their own establishment by Christ. All believers are then anointed, or I should say anointed as well. They are commissioned to service for Christ, each within his or her own abilities and gifts, as the Spirit has gifted them. So Paul was an authority in the church, the founder and the apostle. But he was telling the Corinthians that the gift of salvation and all that attends that is equally given to every believer. Because I'm standing up here doesn't make me any better than anybody out there. As a matter of fact, there's people out there that I know I could learn a lot from and gladly do. It's, it's when you begin to think that you're indispensable that you are dispensable. There is, there's none of us that is better than the others. And this is what was happening. These super apostles, whoever they were, were trying to establish their superiority over Paul. And he has to nip that in the bud because they are not bringing the truth. They're bringing a lie. And people will gravitate towards the lie, especially if it makes them feel good, especially if it makes them feel more important than someone else. Humility is not natural. It's not natural. So he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. Paul makes sure that he knows all of, all of the Corinthians were as equal, were equally established, anointed, gifted, and set aside as saints. Any questions or comments about that? Yes. No, once I get past, once I get, once I get to 20, no, I'm kidding. Yes, you can. <laughs> no, go right ahead. I mean, I could be. So you're saying that, uh, you're asking. Yeah, you're confused that Paul is violating Matthew chapter 5, 33. I don't see this as a violation of, of an improper vow. Jesus, um, Nazarenes took vows. Paul took a vow later on in Acts chapter, I don't remember exactly where it's at, but remember he took a vow. The point is to make frivolous vows, to make vows. that One of the things that the Jews were doing is they would call upon the temple. They would call upon God. We're going to have dinner tonight, and I, it's an oath. You know, they would make an oath for the silliest, most imp improper things. Jesus was calling them out on making oaths improperly. God himself, in Genesis chapter 15, makes an oath. The Father makes an oath when he promises Abraham. And he, and he uh, has him hack the animals in half and then march between them. So it's not, that, it's not that we are not to have oaths, it's that we're to be very, very careful about them and only be involved in calling upon God in this manner when it is clear that it is necessary. Well, he's, he's, he's contrasting the Old Testament statement, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord 
But then he says, I'm, I call on you not to make an oath by heaven or by the throne of God. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I look at that as him saying, it's unnecessary if your yes is yes and your no is no. So Paul is going the extra mile here. Would you, would you go for that? Would you, would that, would that make sense? He's letting, he's saying, my yes is yes. And I'm calling God to witness for that. That my yes is yes. My no is no in Christ as, as given to me by God. I would say a witness and an oath are different. Right. The goblets in the temple. Or they would say, well, this is declared korban. I can't use this for my parents because it's a gift to God. And then later on, they would go around the backside and, and do a trade with one of the priests and get that money back. So they were violating. They, they were, that's why he said, you shall not. He starts out, the ancients say, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. So calling God to witness is different also as an oath. But also, as Jim pointed out, Jesus was, was uh, dealing with a complete perversion of the idea of shaking hands. It's, it's this. Crossing your fingers behind your back. You can't see me. Crossing your fingers behind your back when you shake somebody's hand. Or writing a contract up in such a way that it relieves you of responsibility when it looks like it's supposed to be giving you responsibility. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. And then, frankly, we wouldn't need oaths. Yeah, if, and if people can... If people can trust that your yes is yes and your no is no, there was a time when a handshake was as good as gold. As good as the gold of the temple. No, not the temple. I mean, <laughs> and that's what was going on with Paul. That's what was going on with Paul. That's a good... <laughs> and, and I should also to, to kind of tack on to that if this worker has been trustworthy and has been there every day and has given more than was required of him. And one day he, was, he doesn't show up. What's your first thought? No, I think my first thought would be something came up. Because he would be here. It wouldn't be, well, he sure proved to be an untrustworthy jerk. Untrustworthy jerk. He was only on time for 21 years. <laughs> Paul was on time all the time. And then when he made a mistake, these false apostles jumped in and used it to impugn his character. Because if you can impugn someone's character, everyone backs away from them. I have a, a close friend who was accused of of something that I knew he didn't do. And it turned out he didn't. But it took a year or so before the, the truth came forward. And people who should have known better backed away from him. They should have known better. This man's character was proven for three decades that I knew of. Let's not think so lightly of our brethren in Christ that we, we denounce them on the slimmest of margins. And that's what was going on here. And it was a heartbreaker to Paul. This wasn't just, this wasn't just, nah, nah, nah. This was, you're not trustworthy. We don't even think what you're saying about God is trustworthy now. Why? Because you didn't come and visit us. Okay. Thanks for the question. He who establishes us, and then verse 22, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Can't see the whole thing, but you'll get the gist of it. The word seal is very interesting. Svargidzo, it's in ancient Roman times, a seal was an identifying mark that guaranteed ownership and possession. They were often made of wax with the mark of the guarantor embedded in the wax with usually a hot instrument that would stamp the wax. You knew if Nero had sealed something because his seal would be in the wax on whatever it was, a book, or in the case of the crucifixion, 
there, I think there was something strung across the tomb and a seal placed on that. Interestingly enough, uh, Jesus' tomb was sealed by the Roman authorities. To break a seal without authorization could result in the death of the perpetrator, of the seal breaker. All believers have been sealed. There's one difference. Our seal can't be broken. We can't break it. You can't break it. The authorities can't break it. Satan can't break it. It's unbreakable. It's unbreakable. All believers have been sealed. They have the mark of the one who guarantees their salvation, which is the Holy Spirit. The pledge spoken of here is the down payment or the guarantee of the internal, eternal inheritance of every believer. Now, when I, in the old days, when we bought our house, we had to make a down payment. You don't have to do that so much anymore, it seems like. But part of the deal was to get some skin in the game so that it, it hurts you to not go through with the, with the, uh, the contract, to consummate the contract. If you put down $60,000 on a $200,000 house, you're going to do everything you can to make sure that you pay for the rest of that house. It's not quite the same with the Holy Spirit because He's God, but He has the interesting thing about the pledge. It's the payment or the guarantee of the internal inheritance of every believer. This is the same concept as the earnest payment on a house, except that this purchaser will never renege on his purchase. The Holy Spirit will never renege on his purchase. Once the Holy Spirit establishes, anoints, seals, and pledges, the believer is secure because the guarantor is God himself. <laughs> and God cannot be overpowered, nor will he ever go back on any promise that he has made. And the interesting, other interesting thing here is that the pledge isn't some ethereal seal or promise. The pledge is the Holy Spirit himself. The third person of the Trinity is the pledge that has been placed on your life, in your heart, permanently to seal you to eternity with God and to change your life day by day by grace. This is far more effective than the mere mercantile art or act of securing something with money. This minor change in Paul's travel plan seems to have upended some of the Corinthian understanding of what it means to be a believer. They were calling into question, there were those who were. Now, sometimes when I say things, it sounds like I'm making a blanket statement. The whole church wasn't doing this. There were those in Corinth who were calling into question everything about Paul simply because he couldn't maintain his original itinerary. Look at how he's done this through this letter. He's explaining to them that that's not a good idea to call someone's character into question over that. When we see the reason for it, and he doesn't get to that for a, way, a little bit yet, it's an amazing thing. Why didn't he say it at the first, I thought, but I think he wanted to impart some, some understanding to the Corinthians about how important it is to trust the character of someone who's been sealed by God until there's clear indication that they can't be trusted. Reading a Rand McNally wrong isn't an indication that your character is failing. And that isn't what he did here either, but that's kind of the metaphor. I, the only one I can come up with off the cuff. His character had changed, they said. Indeed, he made, he made, they thought his character had changed, but he made extra efforts to do whatever was necessary for the Corinthians when his chapel plans were interrupted. His care for them prompted him to go the extra mile, literally. Now, 
now's when we're going to get the answer. So I want to I want to finish this up. So I'll, I'll ask for questions about 23 and 24 when we get there. But but I call on God. I call God as a witness to my soul to spare you. I did not come again to Corinth. There's that witness. He calls him as a witness. He's not making an oath, but he's calling God as a witness. God, does God direct your travel plans? I mean, when you have a flat tire, he doesn't turn to the Holy Spirit and go, oh, what are we going to do? She has a flat tire. We didn't think about that. Is there a less swap near? Oh, no. Never. God never has sweat on his upper lip. Ever. And so Paul says this, I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. There it is. To spare them. What was he sparing them from? He gets into it here. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus encouraged his disciples to live in such a way that oaths were not necessary. They were to simply let their yes be yes and their no be no. This is not to say that oaths are wrong, for even God himself swore an oath to Abraham. And so here Paul calls God to witness for him when he finally answers the Corinthians as to why he didn't come to Corinth as he had originally indicated. He wanted, there's a couple of things that come, about, that come out in the, in the ensuing chapters, but he wanted to give them time to correct the problems that he wrote of in 1 Corinthians, and he wanted them to recover from the issues that prompted the severe letter, which we don't have, Referred to in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4. And I will have a chronology for us when we get to chapter 2, so we can kind of see how this all plays out. It is likely he was looking for more good reports from his missionary fellows regarding the Corinthians turning from false apostles and back to the true God. In short, he wanted to spare them a visit in which he would have to have been stern, reprimanding, probably coarse and corrective. He was hoping his writing and time and the work of the Holy Spirit would bring the change to Corinth that was necessary. We're quick, quick to bring judgment on people when they fail. And slow, it seems like. Not all of us, but many of us are. Slow to bring praise when they do well. As Augustine said in his rebuke, he had some nuns that he was rebuking at the time, and he said this. He said, as severity is ready to punish the faults which, may dis which it may discover, so charity is reluctant to discover the faults which it must punish. Let me say that again. As severity is ready to punish the faults which it may discover, so charity is reluctant to discover the faults which it must punish. And then he said this. He said, this was the reason of my not acceding to your request for a visit from me at a time when if I had come, I must have come not to rejoice in your harmony, but to add more vehemence to your strife. It was Augustine with a, a group of nuns that had apparently not been doing what they should have been doing. Nuns. You know, I'll leave that alone for some other time. <laughs> In no way did Paul want to add to their difficulties as he was concerned that his, present might, his presence, his physical presence might have done. There was already enough trouble in Corinth without Paul, his, his, in his own estimation, probably adding to it. Too much rebuke and too little praise can result in a defeated person. Bar Barclay explains it this way. Paul used severity and rebuke very unwillingly. He used them only when he was driven to use them and there was nothing else left to do. There are some people whose eyes are always focused to find fault, whose tongues always tuned to criticize, in whose voice there is always a rasp and an edge. Paul was not like that. In this he was wise. 
If we are constantly critical and fault-finding, if we are habitually angry and harsh, if we rebuke far more than we praise, the plain fact is that our even our severity loses its effect. It is discounted because it is so constant. The more seldom a man rebukes, the more effective it is when he does. In any event, the eyes of a truly Christian man seek ever for things to praise and not for things to condemn. And Paul wanted to give the Corinthians the benefit of the doubt as much as possible. Give them time to recover. The Holy Spirit, and that's also the sign of a, a man or a woman who understands that there really is a Holy Spirit and He really is always at work in the lives of every believer, changing them, blessing what they do well, correcting what they do wrong, instructing, correcting, rebuking, and praising. And he ends the chapter like this. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. Paul makes it clear something here that needs to be said and it needs to be cleared down through history and on into time immemorial until Christ comes back. The teacher, pastor, elder has no authority over the faith of others. He is to bring the truth carefully, precisely, and courageously. Every believer stands or falls before his master who is Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul understood this and he made sure the Corinthians knew he was not lording it over them but he was agonizing over their growth and he loved them. He was a worker with them and there was joy in that work and he knew that many of them were standing firm in their faith. Any who were not were subject to the authority and discipline of the Lord himself and to the church as needed. That authority never extended to controlling those whom he had preached the gospel to. His responsibility, as is the responsibility of every teacher and pastor, is to spread the word, to make it clear, and to watch the triune God accomplish His pleasure in the lives of every believer. Now, that isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean that the teachers and those in, in God-given positions of authority aren't to call out sin, but they don't own you. We don't own the, the, those in leadership. Don't own those under them. They don't have authority over their faith. When Paul rebuked. Well, actually, in light of the previous verses that Paul wrote, he needed to make sure the Corinthians understood that although he didn't come to Corinth because he wanted to spare them more rebuke, he nevertheless understood that all he could do would be to rebuke them and then build them up. He could not, nor did he, nor did not. He could not, nor did he want to control them. His desire was to see them grow by grace as they obeyed the Holy Spirit. So here's Barclay again. He says, when Paul rebuked, the last thing he wanted to do was domineer. In a modern novel, this would have been back during Barclay's time in the 1800s. In a modern novel, the father says to his son, I'll beat the fear of the loving God into you. Have you heard that? I'll beat the, I'll love the, I'll beat the fear of the loving God into you. I'll make you, okay, that's kind of a competition of words there. The great danger which the preacher and the teacher ever incur is coming to think that our duty is to compel others to think exactly as we do and to insist that if they do not think, do not see things as we see them, they must be wrong. Everyone is entitled to my opinion. The duty of the teacher is not to impose beliefs on other people, but to enable and to encourage them to think out their own beliefs. The aim is not to produce a pale copy of oneself, but to create an independent human being. 
one who was taught by that great teacher, A.B. Bruce, said, he cut the cables and gave us a glimpse of the blue waters. Paul knew that as a teacher, he must never domineer, although he must discipline and guide. And, and that's what Barclay said. And when necessary, call them to account. But they answer. We all answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the introductory chapter of 2 Corinthians ends. Paul has greeted them. He has assured them that the God of all comfort will indeed comfort them. He has apprised them of his willingness to endure affliction in order to bring them the truth and to build them up. He looks to them for prayer and encouragement. Remarkable. He loved them. There were good, solid, trustworthy, firm believers in Corinth. And he looked to them for prayer, for encouragement, for counsel even. It doesn't say that, but it's implied. You've got to be really careful about what you say Scripture implies. <laughs> it implies I should be a billionaire by tomorrow. Anybody want to contribute? Yeah, reading between the lines. <laughs> yeah, I'm really reading between the lines. He wants them to make sure they know right in this beginning chapter that everything he has written in past letters to them is just what he meant. Everything he said to them when he brought the gospel to them those 18 months was just what the gospel was. There was no hidden meaning. It was the gospel, pure and simple. There were no hidden meanings, and there will be no hidden meanings in this letter, is what he's implying. His, his inability to keep an itinerary was actually part of a decision not to cause them more grief. In this, they needed to see that it was his love that drove him to change his plans, that was part of what drove him to change his plans, and it will be his love for them that will govern the rest of this letter to them. Remember we were we read earlier or we heard earlier in the introduction that this is the least doctrinal, although I see lots of doctrine in here, but it's the least doctrinal and the most personal of all of Paul's letters. In it, they get to know the man and his pains, his likes, his dislikes, his hurts. And in this first chapter we find out that he was actually he was hurt by their impugning his character over a decision he made not to bring them more grief. Now, how would you like to find out about that after you just told somebody what a jerk they were for not doing this and then you found out that they didn't do it because they didn't want to hurt you more? Yes. It's one of the fundamental reasons he didn't go. There was no earthquake. There was no tornado. Nobody died. As far as we know. That was a major part of the decision. I'm sure there were other parts that we're not, we're not told about. But he did not want to bring them more grief. This was a church in turmoil. And sometimes it's best to just back away from someone and let the Holy Spirit work on them. Let, let time and circumstances and the Word of God work on them. Because God is always at work to do, to will and to do of His good pleasure in our lives. He's always at work. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't have to take a break. I'm so grateful. Any other questions? But what's remarkable to me is he waits till the end of the first chapter to let them know. He didn't say it right at the beginning. I wanted to spare you. All of this other information, all of this other scripture was important for them to see how important it isn't to jump, how important it is not to jump to conclusions. Conclusions are often made of foam. And when you jump over and land on them, you go right through it. Anybody else? Any other comments? We're going to end there.
Oh, I went over. Father, thank you that you are always at work in our lives and that the difficulties we experience, you have brought them that you might grow us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not how the difficulties are, it's how we respond to them. It's not what they are, it's how we respond to them that defines us. And uh, Lord, as we respond to them in the will and in the grace of the Holy Spirit, you are glorified. Others can see the gospel is true and Christ is exalted. We thank you this morning that this letter is one that can be used today, 2,000 years later, to build up believers, to encourage us to praise one another and to be about the business of, of uh, supporting one another and encouraging one another. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.